Hi there. Thanks for downloading and listening to the 4 Million Years Later podcast. This is the show where two old friends get together and watch an episode of the Transformers Generation 1 cartoon in story order, then convene to talk about what they saw and compare their perspectives as young people who fell in love with the show and never fell out of love with it. And here we are as much older people who still love the show and are visiting it episode by episode to talk about how our perspectives remain the same, how they changed. My name is Jersey Droz. I'm a cartoonist and teaching artist. The other host is named... Hoover. Hoover, are we talking about an episode? No, we are continuing our talking about Transformers the movie. If you could see us, you could see we're shaded much better than we usually are. <laughs> I have a rim light and a shadow. And the animation is just 10% better. Every time I talk, my hands are moving into the frame just to show <laughs> you. Look how much better the animation is. <laughs> So, yeah, last last episode, we talked about the first 20-some minutes of the movie and then realized, oh, gosh, we can't cover this all in one go, so we're going to do it in four goes. So here we are on part two of our coverage of Transformers the movie. Where should people start if they want to watch along with us, like watch the, the section that we're going to discuss so they can you know, form their own opinions and then hear how they stack up to ours? Well, if you have the Blu-ray, this begins at Chapter 4 of the Shout Factory Blu-ray. If you're not using the Blu-ray, this is about 19 minutes and 25 seconds in. Mm. Primes has just landed his shuttle. Okay. So, take us away, Hoover. So, as we begin, Prime has decided that Megatron must be stopped, no matter the cost. In the past, Prime has only unleashed just enough violence to send Megatron retreating. But now, he's just gone too far. Megatron has murdered Autobots now. At this stage in the battle, Prime may or may not know that some of his friends are dead. But Prime knows that Megatron has escalated things. And this wanton destruction is so egregious that just to shoot lasers at Megatron until he decides to fly home is not enough. Megatron must be stopped, and the only way to stop him is to kill him. And if Prime has to die to accomplish this, he's okay with that. Is that what you got from that when you were a kid? Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. I did not. <laughs> I mean, and the funny thing is, like, I, I we've talked about this in past episodes. I knew Optimus, spoilers, everybody, I know what's going to happen to Optimus when I was in the theater watching this. But at the same time, I didn't. I don't. I don't think I felt the gravity of this when he says it because, like, the moment he says Megatron must be stopped no matter the cost, all of a sudden, like, soaring synth music kicks in, <laughs> and like, like, like this this joyous "You got the touch" theme starts playing as he's rolling in. So it's like, well, it's not gonna be. It's not gonna go bad here. This is gonna be Optimus being amazing, right? <laughs> so, but you you caught the gravity of that of him saying like, oh, even if it means that. So, yeah, cool. and and going into seeing the film, I you know I'd already seen season three episodes just as you had, and I knew Prime was going to die because all my friends you know told me about everything I'd missed, so I knew it was going to yeah. happen. Mm-hmm. So as a kid, I was like, well, yeah, he's he's definitely going <laughs> to end his life and trying to save everyone else. Yeah, well, they also telegraphed the punch in 
the trailers because I remember hearing Victor Crowley in the trailer saying, "Does Prime die? Then who <laughs> will lead the Autobots?" I'm like, "Oh, what?" Mm-hmm. And then I watched season three, and it's like, "Oh yeah." And RC literally says in Five Face of Darkness, "That's what Optimus Prime said when he was dying." I'm like, "Okay, I guess he's dead now." <laughs> so I knew he, I knew he was gonna die, but I didn't know how. I, I didn't know any of the details of the movie. So I just like when that music kicks in, I'm like, "Okay, this is gonna be incredible." So. So off Prime drives towards the crew of Decepticons that he spotted. And this is another nice bit about having more runtime to play with because Transformers episodes don't often give us a whole lot of establishing shots, giving us a sense of place, a sense of scene. You know, name any four episodes of the Transformers and ask yourself, where did it take place, right? Okay, Kremzik took place in J- Japan, quote-unquote. What, what part of Japan? Where in Japan? What, you know, most of the stories take place in the desert someplace, right? Mm-hmm. So, but here we see this view as he transforms into truck mode all slow-mo and the music kicks in with the soaring synths and then it does this wide shot showing the wreckage of Autobot City in the foreground and you got that dam that he's driving over with the water and the big open scene in the back with the shuttle parked on the ground. And it's just like, it's only like two or three seconds of animation, but man, it just gives this thing the ability to breathe a little bit Mm -hmm. and also give us a sense of what does Autobot City look like? There's grass! They have grass, Hoover. <laughs> wow. And, and, and the, the rocks are gray, and there's actually clouds in the sky now instead of, like, the orangish or bluish sky that you usually see in or, like, around the arc. So I, I've always loved this. I've always loved that there was this m- little pause to give you a sense of anticipation. Because this is another thing, like, about pacing and storytelling is, like, when you watch those movies where, like, it's like a haunted house. You're in the haunted house. You hear noise in another room, right? And what does the character always do? Well, they get up, and they, like, slowly walk towards the doorknob, right? I don't know about you, but when I'm at home and I hear a noise like that, I'm like, flashlight on. I'm moving toward it because whatever's in my house, I don't want it there anymore. (laughs) (laughs) I don't go, like, I wonder what it could be. I'm going to tiptoe toward the thing, right? So giving a little bit of a sense of anticipation, right? And this is something that... I've argued for in Transformers R.I.D. 2001 when they do like the elaborate transforming animation sequences over and over again and reuse the animation. Like, but it's giving us a second to think about how cool this next moment's going to be. And that's what this moment feels like to me. It gives mm-hmm. me a sense of place. It's beautiful to look at. The backgrounds are gorgeous. And it gives me just like a quick little moment to catch my breath as I'm about to watch what's going to happen. And what's happening, what happens next is nothing less than iconic, right? If you are a Generation 1 Transformers fan, this next scene is one of those things that like almost gets burned into your brain like a tattoo. <laughs> so the Decepticons are running into Autobot City, and as he's running in, Megatron passes Swoop, still unconscious from part of headquarters collapsing on him. I'm not sure I ever noticed that before. For this movie, it really behooves you at times to have your finger on the pause or the slow-mo buttons because a lot of shots go by really quick and you can miss little cameos. Mm-hmm. A group of Decepticons run behind Megatron, including Soundwave, Thundercracker, Ramjet, Thrust, Shrapnel, and Blitzwing. But coming up behind them is a very angry Optimus Prime. His squealing tires alert Blitzwing and Shrapnel to his presence, and then Thrust turns to see what everyone's looking at, and wham! Thrust gets a face full of truck grill and goes tumbling through the air. (laughs) Shrapnel almost escapes, but gets clipped and knocked to the ground, while Blitzwing seems to remember he can fly just in time to escape. (laughs) Yeah, and this is... I remember seeing this in some of the trailers, too, that that 
classic shot of Thrust face going, oh, no, <laughs> just before Optimus hits him. And this is one of those things where not to sound like Paul F. Tompkins' joke about jazz, but it's, it's like it's, it's the notes we're not playing. But sometimes it's about what you don't show. It's like you see the grill, you see Thrust face going like, oh, no. And then you see Thrust flying through the air. Like they don't <laughs> actually show the impact. And it's so much more satisfying. Cause, and how do, you, how do you know it's more satisfying? Watch when he hits shrapnel. It's okay. Yeah. It, it's cool he hits shrapnel. But when he hits thrust, and you see his face, and you see him in the sky, it's great. Oh, my gosh. What, what, a beautiful, what a beautiful shot. Plus, it's funnier when it happens to a dope. So <laughs> it could have been sure. Dirge, Ramjet, or Thrust. And yeah. either one of those three guys would have been great to see <laughs> fly through the air here. And they picked the right one. <laughs> so the other amassed Decepticons turn and fire on Prime, but even after some direct hits, Prime transforms, leaping into the air and returning fire. Boom, down goes Ramjet. Boom, down goes Thundercracker. Boom, down goes Soundwave. All while Prime is in midair. He lands on his two feet and takes out Dirge and Shrapnel as well. Prime is a one-bot wrecking crew. Yeah, and I got mixed feelings on that aspect of it, of like watching him. Like, don't get me wrong, when I was 13, goosebumps, goosebumps on every inch of my body, even inside of my body, you know, watching this scene, right? We, this, is, this is us seeing Optimus at full potential, like we always wanted to see him in the show. And actually, it kind of reminds me of like more like season one battles where it's like creative and kind of satisfying to watch as opposed to standing across the alleyway and shooting. Mm-hmm. But, you know, watching him just like ruthlessly taking everybody else down. As satisfying as it is, it's also, in my mind, it's like, oh, the other Autobots could have been helping with that, too. I mean, otherwise, like, why even have the other Autobots? But I do love how graceful and effortless this looks, right? He blasts into the sky with rockets out of the bottom of his truck mode and transforms into robot mode. But as he's he's literally, like, floating through the air as he's taking everybody out. And it's not savage. He's not ripping their throat out. He's not, like, <laughs> coming in like Arnold Schwarzenegger throwing a saw in a guy's head and then making a one-liner. He's not even talking. He's mm-hmm. floating through the air and just picking them off one at a time. It's precise. This is... And what I love about this, I want to underline this with Black Crayon four times. This is Optimus demonstrating peak skill here, which is important in the narrative for about... for what's coming next, Right? Before we say goodbye to this guy, let's create some contrast for who's going to follow him. Look at how awesome Optimus is. Boy, I hope the next guy's this awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Everybody's going to be expecting him to be this awesome. So, yeah, I, I, what a great way to demonstrate that very, like, I want to say, like almost archetypally, and I mean in the, I mean that in the sense that we just receive it. It just happens. Like none, none of us in the in the theater are going like that's so graceful how he's doing that. Mm-hmm. It just it feels like amazing skill is happening, and it doesn't feel oh it feels macho, but it doesn't feel like the kind of savage macho of like a Rambo. It feels graceful, and I love it. One minute ago, Megatron had an army running with him. As he turns around, he sees no army. Only a very vengeful prime. One shall stand, one shall fall. Why throw away your life so recklessly? That's a question you should ask yourself, Megatron. No! I'll crush you with my bare hands! And with that, Megatron leaps towards Prime, knocking them both back outside where Prime single-handedly took out an army of Decepticons. Hot Rod and Cup oversee the battle. I've got to help Prime! 
That's Prime's fight. Prime punches Megatron and he goes flying, skidding to a stop against a wall. And then he grabs a twisted piece of debris and hurls it at Prime, catching him right in the side of his belly. Now maybe this is reaching, but in another wildly popular story, another heroic leader was once pierced in the side with a spear. A character even more famous than Optimus Prime. His name? Jesus of Nazareth. I have to wonder if the writers did this as an intentional nod. You're to find out that like one of them just like was a big fan of the Spear of Destiny story in mm. DC Comics. <laughs> I'm like, oh yeah, it was also a famous story on besides that, right? <laughs> but interesting, I didn't make that connection. But this wound does not stop Prime. Megatron gets a shot off from his fusion cannon, which Prime is able to dodge. And then Megatron goes for another shot, but Prime rushes him and shoves him into the wall as Megatron's second shot misses as well. It's worth watching when he does these two shots. This didn't happen earlier in the film, but in this fight sequence, when he's firing the fusion cannon, it vents out of the back when he fires. Mm -hmm. So this is another one of those things where it's like I was just watching really close to everything just to see, like, what am I noticing? And I noticed that. And I do wonder if, like, this goes to, like, your hypothesis about Megatron constantly upgrading his gun. Mm -hmm. Right. Like this is like like Fusion Cannon 9.0 after his first encounter with the newly minted Optimus Prime in War Dawn. Mm -hmm. But for whatever reason, they're animating like like this blast of fiery smoke coming out of the back of the Fusion Cannon. And it just feels so much more intense and powerful. And also Megatron, shame on you. You said you'd crush him with your bare hands. Cheater. (laughs) It also feels like the Fusion Cannon takes a little bit longer between shots Mm -hmm. than it did in the series. So I wonder if that's also a component of it being upgraded. Yeah. Like the blasts are more powerful now, but it takes a little bit longer to to quote-unquote reload. Yeah, kind of like in Season 2 Beast Wars Megatron, how his gun changed to where it had to like charge before he fired it. Mm. Mm -hmm. The transmetal tail had to do that little like warm-up, whereas in Season 1 it was just like, bam, 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 all the time out of that dinosaur head. (laughs) So Megatron's fusion cannon then slides off, and he slides down the wall. Rolling with it, Megatron picks up a convenient laser sword from the debris around him as Prime removes the metal he's been pierced with. But Megatron slices Prime in his fresh side wound, which flashes with electrical static. In all the chaos of the battle, Prime has dropped his gun and backs away as Megatron leaps into the air with his sword, about to bring it down on Prime at full force, but don't count Prime out yet. As Megatron descends towards Prime, he gets a Nintendo Punch-Out style uppercut, and Megatron goes flying back yet again, crashing to the ground. And this shot is another one of those iconic burn-into-our-memories shot. We all know that scene when Megatron leaps up into the sky, and we're looking from behind Optimus's shoulder, and Megatron kind of gets lost in the sun for a second and then comes down to meet Optimus's fist, right? And this... These kinds of shots are the things that, as I was a late teen and early adult, when I was trying to justify my love of this franchise, (laughs) (laughs) I was like, they weren't hacking this in. That is a gorgeous shot. It's beautifully animated. It's it's thought out. It's compositionally great. It fits with the anticipation of waiting two seasons for this battle to happen. You know, they're paying off something 
that we've been waiting for for a long time, and they're really selling it well. Now, when I was 13, all I was thinking about is like, this movie has murder and swears. It's a grown-up <laughs> movie, right? My, my relationship with it wasn't terribly sophisticated. But when I was 16 and 17, only like three or four years later, I'm like, look at the animation and the compositions, people. I am not dumb for loving this. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so Prime rushes him, dodging a kick from Megatron, but as he lands, Megatron pounces on him feet first, causing the two to grapple like professional wrestlers. Megatron and Prime struggle, but finally Prime is able to overpower him and toss him aside. Megatron goes flying and crashes down face first, skidding to a stop. Cup, having watched the whole battle, yells for Prime to finish him off. Prime finds his rifle, picks it up, and walks over to the fallen Decepticon leader. Megatron struggles to get up, managing to get on all fours as he turns towards Prime. Amidst the debris between them, Megatron spots a discarded pistol just out of reach. Time for Megatron to use that acting ability again that he used so well on Sean Berger long ago. <laughs> no more Optimus Prime! Grant me mercy, I beg of you! You were without mercy, now plead for it? I thought you were made of sterner stuff. As Prime reacts to those words, Megatron slowly inches forward towards the hidden handgun, which Optimus can't see from his vantage point. Megatron picks it up, but then somebody leaps in, tackling the Decepticon leader. No, you don't, Megatron! Out of the way, Hot Rod! Hot Rod starts grappling with Megatron, but he's overpowered by this tyrant who pretty much wraps him in a headlock while raising the found pistol at Prime. He fires. The blast catches Prime right where he's already wounded. Second shot into the pre-existing wound. Third shot into the chest. Fourth shot right in the face. Prime is knocked to the ground. Megatron stands up and shoves Hot Rod away, not even looking at him. He is beneath him, not worth his time. Megatron approaches Prime as our hero struggles to stand. I would have waited an eternity for this. It's over, Prime. Prime shudders and gasps for air, but summons all his strength into his arms, locks his fists together, shouting, and knocks Megatron off the ledge down to another ledge below, which he also falls off of, down to the orange metallic ground below as Decepticons rush around him. So can I just say that Optimus summoning all of his strength into his arms like that, I, I can think of a little human breaking mm. that trick. See, it, the humans always make the Autobots make better decisions. That's why the battle went the way it did. Prime struggles to stand but fails just as Hot Rod rushes up to him. Optimus... Forgive me. So uh, this particular scene, I've always really, I've always had a lot of fondness for how they played out Optimus falling to the ground here. He staggers, and then when he falls, there's no bounce. It's just a, like a, a dead thud. And it doesn't have the metallic clank of Autobot movement that we've heard in the series so far. Like when they walk, there's like it's like they're like clanking on a trash can kind of sound. And, and yes, go back to season one, I make the observation of how the footsteps sounded different in season one. 
But for this, when he falls, it literally sounds like they just took like a Rubbermaid trash can and just dropped it on the ground. It's just like this dead thud. And it feels so final. It feels so sad. If he, if he feel, And plus, look at the composition of the shot. He's on the far left as he falls. The edge of the broken platform obscures most of his body. And then there's like that, that dark haze on the right. Mm-hmm. He just feels so alone. And it feels so... It doesn't feel like a triumphant Titanic victory. It feels like a victory with cost. Yeah. Right? And again, you know, it's like that's why this movie is so, so popular with the Transformers fans. We all love this movie because of stuff like that. It's not because they're swears. <laughs> <laughs> Although as children, we loved it. We're going to talk about that a lot later. But and it's not just because we got to watch Megatron shoot Ironhide's head off. Right. That's not what is moving about it. It's that we got to see the, the battle we always waited for. And it's like Optimus says never. And then. You know, Megatron falls and it looks like he's dead. And it's like, oh, he won, he won. Oh, wait. And then he falls and you hear that clunk. Right? Mm-hmm. So it's like, you, it, what an emotional ride to go on. Watch, you got the Stan Bush music, got the amazing fight, and then all of a sudden it's like, oh, wait. Wait, no, no. This can't mean what I think it means. And even as a child who knew what was going to happen, you know, I still felt the gravity of this. This felt, like, real and somehow... Very, very different than everything we saw. Of course it was different than what we saw before because we know what's going to happen next. There, even if we didn't know what was going to happen next, we know when we see that. Well, down below, Megatron lies motionless, his wounds seething with electricity as Soundwave, Hook, and Starscream gaze upon him. Starscream wants to assess the damage. How do you feel, mighty Megatron? He then gives Megatron's lifeless body a swift kick. Transform and get us out of here! It's only then that Megatron lifts his head. Uh, don't leave me, Soundwave. Soundwave lifts up his leader's moribund body as Astro Train runs up and transforms to locomotive form. The fleeing Decepticons chase after him, knowing he's their ticket out. Autobots fire on the retreating Decepticons as Soundwave carries his master away. Rumble runs behind, having retrieved the boss's fusion cannon. Now, I have talked with a lot of different people about this movie over my lifetime. And I have also had people in my life who just didn't really care for the Transformers that much, who are like, well, okay, I'll watch it with you because you seem to be very excited about it. And they get through the first, like, third of the movie, or the first, like, like 15 minutes of the movie, and like, oh, my God, this is just, like, like brutality. It's just, you really enjoyed watching all of your favorite characters get murdered? And I'm like... Well, no, <laughs> there's more to it than that. But but invariably, like they, they always had some reason to cross their arms about it. Like, it's good, it's fine, but boy, it's weird that you love it that much, Jersey. And then they, whenever, like everybody across the board, no matter who they were, whatever walk of life they have, when they saw this scene of Soundwave carrying Megatron and a rumble running behind with a fusion candle, they always go, aww. <laughs> <laughs> now, I got to ask you, as the, you know, the, the representative of the, of the Rumble and Frenzy fan club, I mean, what did this scene feel like to you as a child? It's only like 30 seconds of animation, but it's pretty iconic. Oh, it is perfect. I loved Rumble. And he's so <laughs> friggin' cute here. I mean, we really needed this splash of levity after all this, and the fusion cannon is even bigger than Rumble himself. (laughs) Adding tiny moments of comedy amid all the serious violence is something that this movie does very, very well. 
Yeah, I feel like they took what they did in the actual daily cartoon where they managed how scary it could feel by making the characters lovable on both sides, right? Both Decepticons and Autobots, up until we get to Thrusters and Ramjet, are pretty <laughs> pretty darn lovable in their own way, right? We've talked a lot about Rumble as a character and how, how much he brings to the Decepticon dynamic. And I, I really do think that that character comedy did a lot to make the, the scariness and the danger and the anxiety of a war less upsetting mm-hmm. right for, for for better or worse i i want to say for better because i think that again i don't think that the real story is, is really a war story i think it's about uh, conflicting worldviews and internal dynamics of those two different worldviews but you know it, it it doesn't deal with like the actual horrors and absurdities of war <laughs> but i think that that kind of stuff is this this is something that really imprinted on me as as a person who makes comics for young people i've always got my eye on that is that how really being aware of what are the what's the audience going to be feeling and how can I take them st- take them three steps back just a second to remind us you love these characters don't get too worked up it's okay this is still a cartoon it's still an entertainment okay now we can get back to the heavy stuff <laughs> right so yeah it's it's more subtle in the movie i feel like the, those moments happen a little less frequently and i think they happen with more panache Mm-hmm. When we get to Wheelie later, I'll say maybe not always with Panache. <laughs> Although I love Wheelie, don't, don't get me wrong, I love Wheelie, but I just feel like Wheelie like goes steers like hard right into cute. They're like, okay, now you're alienating a big part of your audience now, but okay. But that this moment of wordless, adorable cuteness, and because it's it's Soundwave the, the cassettes, the most loyal characters of all, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's 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 a great great three seconds of animation. Hmm. RC and Cup note the Decepticons retreat and are swelling with affection for Prime, managing to send them packing. The Decepticons all run into the back of Astrotrain's locomotive form and sink to the floor, all of them exhausted and spent. Yeah, this is a great moment to stop and look at the screen, everybody. The Decepticons aren't looking at each other, right? They're all looking at the floor and like they're like sitting on the floor, right? Like, like thrust is like got his hands at his sides and his knees are all curled up and like mix master is all like kind of leaning on his side and they just look like they've had enough. We never get to see that in the cartoon. It's always them flying away in formation. Just sometimes mm-hmm. retreat and they're all flying and it's like, okay, well we're fine. It's, it sucks to be defeated, but we don't look downtrodden, but here they actually look properly defeated. Starscream bellows for Astrotrain to take off as his engine starts, and the Triple Changer seamlessly changes to space shuttle mode to take to the air and leave the planet. Fade to black. Now here is a perfect example of how the TV transitions would feel immensely out of place had they used them. As we fade in from black, we're inside Autobot City with Prime hooked up to machines to monitor his life force. It's the Autobot equivalent of a hospital room. Cup and Daniel look at the readings on the screen as Ultra Magnus, RC, Blur, and Hot Rod stand over their leader. Prime looks like he's been through hell. His antenna are bent. He has cracks and scrapes all over his body. Part of his truck grill is bent up, and he still has the giant wound in his side. Perceptor is in full-size microscope mode analyzing Prime's damage, but transforms to offer his opinion. I fear the wounds are... Fatal. Prime, 
You can't die. Do not grieve. Soon, I shall be one with the Matrix. Prime. Uh, 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 Ultra Magnus. It, it is to you, old friend. I shall pass the Matrix of Leadership as it was passed to me. But Prime, I'm... I'm just a soldier. I... I'm not worthy. <sighs> Nor was I. But one day, an Autobot shall rise from our ranks and use the power of the Matrix to light our darkest hour. Prime then opens up his chest cavity, a second cover opens, and the glowing matrix is revealed. Describe it for us, Jersey. So here's the strange thing when I saw this, Hoover, and I don't know if you picked up on this, but I thought, gosh, that looks a lot like that Unicron thing that we saw at the beginning of the movie, mm-hmm. right? It's, it's spherical in shape. It's got little bits of metal doodads all over it, but then it's got a ring around it. It's got a metallic ring that forms like, like the ring of Saturn, but it's not perfectly circular it's more oblong so it's like a elongated ring that makes contact with the top and bottom of the sphere now in the center of the sphere is an opening and in the opening is a blue glowing crystal so when optimus presents the matrix the two windows on his chest open like refrigerator doors and then there's a t-shaped panel underneath there that flips up underneath his chin revealing the matrix so and it happens very slowly and gently the way he does it, right? There's no there's no mechanical noises. It doesn't go like or anything like that, right? It's absolutely silent except for the beautiful Vince DiCola music of the death of Optimus Prime, right? And just as he opens it, then the music changes to become a little bit more. You can almost hear like a choir. It feels like a choral in the background. You hear mm-hmm. like the, like an angelic sound. Can we also talk about Peter Collins' performance? in this scene hoover holy cow right this is another thing that like i i'm less angry about now i'm still a little bit bummed out about but when animated films like this one in particular they go like hey look we got leonard Moy to be in it we got lionel standard to be in it now grown-ups now you got to take your kids because the actors you like are in it and i feel like that sort of like snowballed into where we are now it's like you can't do an animated film without justin bieber's in it you know Beyonce's in it. Well, that, that's that's fine, but you know, there's all these voice actors who are like really, really trained in this stuff, and they can play the characters too. And you know what? You say Peter Collins in it. They, we saw this with the Michael Bay movies. It's like suddenly we're interested. <laughs> mm-hmm. So there's this assumption that like, well, you, we're gonna get real actors, and I know it's a cynical play for the most part to say like, well, we want to get the parents to actually notice, so we'll mention some actors that they like from a TV show. Oh, that guy from Parks and Rec who's really happy's in it. Well, I guess I'll watch it, but. When you hear Peter calling this, I'm like, no, no, that guy's like an actor, actor, you know? I mean, we may not know his face as much as that guy from Parks and Rec, but man, when you hear this scene, right, it's tough to watch, even mm-hmm. if you don't really care about Optimus Prime, right? And so now add that to the fact that there's 11-year-olds, 13-year-olds in the audience who actually like kind of really love him. <laughs> yeah. And, and they're hearing him sound like this. And it was like, it was... I got an echo of when I saw E.T. in the theater, right? I'm like, I'm mm. like, okay, I'm, I'm feeling feelings, and I don't think I'm supposed to feel feelings like this. You know, it's like I've been told by every male in my life not to feel these feelings. <laughs> 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 you rub dirt on those feelings, you get back in the game. <laughs> <laughs> but 
it was, it still is. It still is tough to listen to this performance because it's so good. It sounds like he's really, uh, he's he's really saying goodbye. He's trying to hold on as long as he can to to, to give this goodbye. So yes, he present he opens his chest and there's no sound. It's all it's everything moves very gently and then we hear this angelic swell. Everyone steps back, witnessing this event. Prime takes the Matrix and holds it out with his trembling left hand. Until that day, till all are one. Prime's arms fall and the Matrix falls from his hand. Hot Rod leans over to catch it and grabs it in his hands, outstretching his arms as a blue light fills the room. He turns to Ultra Magnus, who just stares at it for a few seconds, then takes it and opens up his own chest cavity, placing the Matrix inside. Okay, we're going to talk about Ultra Magnus a lot. I've got notes on Ultra Magnus, but when I was a kid, I thought this was an era in the animation. But now, as I think more and more about Ultra Magnus, I wonder if they were actually trying to tell us something with this. When Ultra Magnus mm. takes the Matrix, he puts it in his chest. The chest opens up like Optimus's does, right? And then he puts the thing in his chest, and he takes it out again, and then he puts it back in. Do you remember that? Did you mm -hmm. notice that? I always took it as an animation error, like something wasn't being done right. Yeah, like they looped it wrong or something. Yeah. Like, oh, whoop, you repeated some animation. But here's, here's my hypothesis. It doesn't fit. Mm. It's not a perfect fit, right? He's, he himself said, I'm just a soldier. I'm not worthy, you know? But then, he, then he's like, okay, I guess I'll take it. I mean, you, you don't say no to Dying Optimus Prime. If Dying Optimus Prime tells me to eat meat, I'm eating meat. <laughs> <laughs> My wife will come in. It's like, hey, but you haven't done that in like decades. I'm like, Dying Optimus Prime said I had to. <laughs> I'm not questioning that. So, so he takes it, but then when he puts it in, it doesn't quite fit. He has to adjust it. And I, If that's what they were, they were intending to do, bravo. I love that they did something without sound. It, like, also, when Hot Rod holds the Matrix... Everything else disappears. The whole room vanishes and everything glows blue behind him as he's sort of feeling the resonance with this vessel, whatever it is, which we don't know, right? It's the first time we've heard of the Matrix, actually, in the entire yeah. series. But, but the Matrix of leadership, whatever it is, is something that Optimus had because he was the leader. Now he's giving it to Ultra Magnus, making him the leader. So... It's it's cool that they trusted their audience enough to do those little bits without dialogue. Mm -hmm. And that Vince DiCola music just makes everything so, mm. so much better. Uh, yes, it does. Yes, it does. We close up on the readout monitor that has four colors of readings on it, measuring the Autobot equivalent of a heartbeat, maybe. And who knows what else? My headcanon says that one of these readings measures cybertonium. <laughs> <laughs> the Autobots all gather close to the bed where Optimus slowly loses all color and dies, fading to gray. Daniel tries not to cry but loses the fight as tears stream down his face and he lowers his face down onto Optimus's body. Oh my gosh, and then Optimus's head just like falls sideways, right? Now, this is another one of those things where when I was 13, 14, I was like, Man, it's kind of dumb they made him turn gray. Like, why you didn't see any of the other Autobots turn gray when they die? Why did he fade gray? But as an adult who thinks about how cartoon art is a form of visual poetry, in that you're using 
fancy and imprecise language to navigate around a sophisticated idea. So if I say to Hoover, oh, Hoover, you are a rose. Oh, Hoover, you are a swan. And if Hoover says, hey, make up your mind, rose or swan, you didn't get the point. I'm saying you're awesome, like a rose and like a swan, right? So did he, did he literally turn gray? No. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a cartoon and we can get away with this. And what a magnificent visual to send home the idea that he's dead, right? We know unequivocally there is, if, if they just had his, the lights behind his eyes go out, we might still think he can come back. He's going to have some kind of comeback. Great news. Duke came out of his coma, right? Mm -hmm. That's going to happen. But when you have him turn all gray like that, it feels like that's the point of no return. The Rubicon has been crossed. He is now officially dead. We saw it happen. We see poor Daniel bury his face in Optimus's hand, and we feel it. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. So we fade to black again. And as we fade up, we see Unicron, who we haven't seen since the open. We fade to inside the glowing maw, where we see a metal sphere with more than a dozen screens showing the Matrix being passed to Ultra Magnus. And this creature, this Unicron, lets out a guttural, rage-filled scream. And we fade to black again. We fade up to see Astrotrain flying through space, not having an easy go of things. Jettison some weight, or I'll never make it to Cybertron! Now, for years, I've heard lots of fan theories about this. Marty Pants say, there's no weight in space, because weight is a component of gravity, so no gravity means no weight. And they deduced that Starscream had Astrotrain fake having trouble, so he'd have an excuse to get rid of the dying. But luckily, we have a special guest on this episode. We were lucky enough to get the co-author of Science Comics Rockets, one Jersey Droz, to weigh in on this. Welcome, Jersey, to the show. <laughs> Oh, it's great to be here. Now, Jersey, I know there's no weight in space, but there is certainly mass. So can you just put as much mass into a rocket-powered ship and just be trouble-free because there's no gravity in space? Or can you overtax a ship like this by overloading it? So, yeah, that's exactly right, is that, yes, weight is a function of gravity, but weight is the measurement of a mass in a gravitational field, right? So... The higher the gravitational field, the greater the weight. And, and of course, more mass is always going to equal more weight. And the bad news is for the people who are like, there's no gravity in space. It's like, it doesn't matter. If something has a lot of mass, it takes more force to move it. It's on page 17 of Science Comics Rockets, everybody. Because if it were like, like equal and opposite reaction, in other words, like I, I can just push on a planet. It's just going to fly away because I pushed on it. Well, try it right now for yourself, everybody. Jump up and jump down on the Earth. Is it going to fall out of orbit? It's not because the Earth has more mass than you. It has nothing to do with gravity in that scenario, right? So, and, and the measurement of force is the Newton. You learn this all in Science Comics Rockets, which you can purchase for yourself at sciencecomicsrockets.com. <laughs> so, but, I mean, but it takes force to accelerate mass. So if you wanted to get persnickety about it, it could be that what Astrotrain's saying is that, yes, they can get the Cybertron at the speed they're going now, but in order to accelerate at the rate they need to accelerate in order to get there before they run out of Energon, right, then they have to get rid of some of the mass on the ship because he doesn't have, he can't produce enough force to accelerate to the needed speed to get the Cybertron by this time. So who knows if they meant it? I don't really care. But <laughs> the point is, is they got to get rid of the Decepticons. 
And by my count, there's 18 full-size Decepticons inside him, plus Rumble, and presumably the rest of Soundwave's tapes. And that's way more than Astrotrain tends to carry. Fellow Decepticons, Astrotrain has requested that we lighten our burden. In that case, I say it is survival of the fittest. Do I hear a second on that? Soundwave, Ramjet, Dirge, and Thrust all raised their hands, echoing Bonecrusher's suggestion. And against? Skywarp, Thundercracker, Shrapnel, Bombshell, and Kickback, all looking much worse for wear than the others, raised their hands in protest. The eyes have it! Everyone else in the shuttle surround the three Insecticons in Skywarp and Thundercracker, and literally throw them out the side hatch. And while the others were doing that, Starscream has picked up Megatron and has carried him to the hatch. Now pause. (laughs) We see Starscream walk right past Soundwave, who does nothing, makes no move to stop him. This reads very wrong to me. I do not like this. Soundwave always has Megatron's back. This feels wrong. So I had to come up with my own headcanon to accept this, and it is as follows. Soundwave is indeed very pro-throwing the Insecticons and Skywarp and Thundercracker out. No issues there, good riddance. But upon seeing Starscream pick up Megatron, Soundwave had to make a spontaneous judgment call. Does he intervene? Does he stop Starscream from throwing Megatron out? If he does, not only is he going against Starscream, but it's not likely that the Constructicons will side with him, and Primus knows Dirge, Ramjet, and Thrust aren't going to grow a pair and stand up against Starscream. So very quickly, this would turn into everybody against Soundwave and the tapes. And Soundwave does love his leader, but he also loves not dying. If he acts now, he just gets thrown out with Megatron. But if he lets this play out, and takes note of the location where they are currently at, Maybe he can come back later to retrieve Megatron as his body floats through space. Maybe even enlist Shockwave's help. Now I know something else is about to happen that doesn't jibe well with this, but just hold on, put a pin in that. So Starscream carries Megatron's body to the side cargo door. Oh, how it pains me to do this! Wait, I still function! Wanna bet? The most powerful robot, we shall rule. Soundwave superior, Constructicons inferior. Who are you calling inferior? Nobody would follow an uncharismatic boar like you. Hey, nobody calls Soundwave uncharismatic. Yeah, let's kick tailgate. Constructicons unite! So Astrotrain got to lighten his load, but now everyone's fighting inside him, jostling him around. So I'm sure that's not any better. 
Now it's interesting who takes what side. Strangely enough, no one nominated Dirt, Ramjet, <laughs> or Thrust for leadership. How weird. They are shown fighting the Constructicons, so they're Team Soundwave. Blitzwing tackles Soundwave, so he's Team Devastator. Unless he's strictly Team Blitzwing and would take everybody on. <laughs> oh, if only he would have screened zone defense as he was jumping at them. <laughs> <laughs> I do... What, one thing I love about this scene... First of all, I love the fact that it's like... Okay, the Autobot leader dies, and the chain of command stays intact. It's like Optimus bequeaths the power to the next character so that there's there's some kind of succession and there's continuity and stability right the autobots because of the way they are they can do that because the decepticons are all about tyrannical acquisition of power and submit to whoever's the biggest gun in the room and that's megatron's point of view right like in lots of past episodes he has been foiled by the fact that he thinks the only way to impress somebody is be the, the biggest strongest guy in the room so what does that mean? That means that the moment there's a power vacuum, <laughs> everybody's going to stand up going, I'm not the most powerful man in the room, right? So I like that. But what I love the most is watching Ravage jump on a full-size Decepticon, watching <laughs> Laserbeak and the tapes all take on everybody around them to try to get Soundwave the leadership position. So it's just, it's super cute watching. I, I think it's Hook who like jumps into the frame and then Ravage jumps on his back. <laughs> <laughs> That's the great thing about the tapes, man. Even though they're small, they never like think twice about their actions. They no, just react. no. And Blitzwing is no slouch, and the scene ends with Blitzwing getting slammed into a wall by by Ravage. Who <laughs> 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 it's just I mean, he's he's so darn cute, but also really, really deadly. That's great. That that is that's what really makes that scene for me. But also as a kid, it's funny that they were working on this movie concurrently with the making of season two so i don't know how much they were aware of I, i'm sure they were i'm sure flint dilly was aware of this is that we were watching starscream try over and over and over again to get the position right and we talked about in starscream's brigade that it was like when he gets megatron to say you're in charge now it felt momentous oh my gosh it happened mm. and this time it feels like it really did happen. Now, remember, I well, I don't remember for sure if I knew that Starscream was dead. I don't think we got to Starscream's ghost by the time mm. I saw this scene, right? So when I saw this, it felt like, oh, my. Now, I know there's another guy named Galvatron coming, and I don't know what his deal is, but are we going to get, like, the rest of the movie, Starscream's in charge? That's pretty interesting. <laughs> so as, as, as the Starscream fan, you know, I was like, oh, man, I'm, I'm here for this. <laughs> now another little fact buzzsaw does not appear in the movie nor ever again unless i'm mistaken i feel like the last time we saw him was in auto berserk maybe he's died at some point another odd fact Ratbat isn't ejected in this fight hmm. possibly he was intentionally left back on earth to spy on autobots and radio back to Soundwave. we will definitely see Ratbat in season three so he's not another casualty so who knows as we fade out from Astrotrain trying to make it back to Cybertron, we cut to the discarded Decepticons floating through space. We haven't seen the last of them, but uh-oh, they're drifting towards Unicron. And Unicron is talking. Megatron. Welcome, Megatron. 
very force of Unicron's speech blows Megatron back so he now floats in the opposite direction, having to try to grasp one of Unicron's curved horns to stop his inertia. Megatron then flies up to the giant maw, searching for the owner of the voice, and we get this amazing scene. Who, who said that? I am Unicron. you here for a purpose? Nobody summons Megatron. Then it pleases me to be the first. State your business. This is my command. You are to destroy the Autobot Matrix of Leadership. It is the one thing, the only thing, that can stand in my way. You have nothing to fear. I have already crushed Optimus Prime with my bare hands. You exaggerate. The point is he's dead, and the Matrix died with him. No. The point is you are a fool. The Matrix has been passed to their new leader, Ultra Magnus. Destroy it for me. Why should I? What's in it for me? Your bargaining posture is highly dubious, but very well. I will provide you with a new body and new troops to command. And? And nothing. You belong to me, no. I belong to nobody! Perhaps I misjudged you. Proceed on your way to oblivion. As you're listening to that clip, if you haven't watched the movie in a while, watch this scene again because it's so good the way they play with giving us a sense of scale, all mm -hmm. the cuts back and forth. You're taught you have a single Decepticon, right? What's Megatron? 30, 35 feet tall? Talking to a living planet. This is a planet that we saw devour an, an entire other planet in the beginning of the movie. And Unicron was bigger than the planet that he ate. So how do you do that? How do you show a conversation be between these two characters? And the shots they use going from real tight in Megatron to really wide, showing this little tiny speck and then Unicron's maw lighting up and talking to him, to inside of Unicron's maw, looking out at this little tiny dot of Megatron. Me medium shot showing Megatron so he's big enough so we can see his body, but then we see this gigantic horn on one side of the screen. All of these shots are so well laid out to really give us a sense of the enormous scale difference between these two characters without us getting lost. It's absolutely clear, but we also feel like this thing is tremendously big. So good. Uh, and plus, can I also say, I love this whole business of Megatron's way of thinking ultimately leads to you're going to make a deal with the devil. If you hold on to power at all costs, right? And that means you're not going to let go of, of the power of being alive, right? Optimus lets go. Optimus mm -hmm. says, don't grieve. Soon we'll be one with the Matrix. It's okay. Death is a part of life. Accept this. It's going to be all right. I'm, and I'm, I'm, as a matter of fact, I'm going to do the succession of leadership right now before I go to make sure that it's done cleanly and, 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 and you know, officially. 
Megatron gets thrown out of the car (laughs) (laughs) and dumped on the side of the road. And then basically the devil shows up, says, well, what's going to be? You know, proceed on your way to oblivion. And if Megatron had any nobility in his soul, he'd be like, okay, yep, I guess I guess this is what it's got to be. This is the ultimate end of 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 my way of thinking. But no, the ultimate end Mm -hmm. of his way of thinking is you'll do anything for that power, even give up whatever it is about you. That is when the Unicron says, you belong to me now. Mm-hmm. You belong to me now? Oh, my goodness. That's so good. I love this. And only Megatron would have the audacity to sass back at a planet. It's <laughs> 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 ah, pretty good, yeah. But he does not go on to his death. He decides at that last moment that he wants that power so much that mm-hmm. he'll do whatever Unicron says. Yeah. And green light shines out of Unicron's maw, bathing Megatron's form, which suddenly turns a monochromatic silver all over. Megatron's body is scanned and becomes translucent, his inner components outlined in a fluorescent purple. Now, the way they show this, it looks really cool. But the way that it, it almost looks like he's being peeled, right? That's mm-hmm. how I read this. Like, Unicron, and that just adds more of, like, this devil devilishness to it. And I wish, I mean, if you're going to make this PG-13 make it look like it hurts Megatron a little bit, Mm. this transformation. But instead, it feels very clinical, right? We're looking at his schematics, and then we're going to change his schematics. But either way, the visual of his skin getting peeled off to reveal a glowing purple schematic looks disturbing enough, right? This, Mm -hmm. this This feels hellish to me, and I love it. And we don't know what exactly has happened to turn him this monochromatic silver. Yeah. He loses yeah. all color except for this sort of silver. And it's almost like like his Unicron like stripping off the paint. Yeah. Is this like the base coat of his original robot form as it was created? Now let's let's not give them too much credit, but I wonder if this is something to you know, Optimus turned gray when he died. Mm. Is Megatron because he's all gray now, but he's chrome, is he undead? Is that basically what they're saying there? Hmm. Probably not. But I like to make that connection. Is that like basically you just ensured that, nope, guess what? You're never going to die. But the the afterlife of the undead is not what you expect, Megatron. So mm-hmm. yeah, he just like goes all gray and silver. And then like that gets peeled away to reveal this purple sort of blueprint of his form, right? Mm-hmm. Then he is literally remade from the ground up as more scanning lines pan up his body, reshaping him into a new form. A purple grid travels up his chest, arms, and head until it reveals this new form. Behold, Galvatron, and these shall be your minions. Unicron pulls in the bodies of the three Insecticons, Thundercracker and Skywarp, and they float towards him, bathed in the same green light. These Decepticons go through the same process, being turned to metallic silver, then translucent, then reformed. Scourge, the Tracker, and his huntsman, the Sweeps. Cyclonus, the warrior and his armada. Now here is a famous mistake or a misinterpretation. But Thundercracker becomes Scourge while Shrapnel and Kickback become Sweeps. 
Skywarp and Bombshell are each turned into the form of Cyclonus. So there are two Cyclonuses here. I'm unsure if Cyclonus was originally supposed to have followers like Scorch has the sweeps, his armada maybe, but it's kind of strange that he only has one, and stranger still that this is the last we see of him. And I don't mean the movie is the last we see of him. This shot is the last we see of him. <laughs> yeah. So no matter what the original intention was, season three shows us more than two sweeps. In fact, I believe it even shows us more than three. Mm-hmm. And it only shows us one Cyclonus. Kind of a key scene to mess up, but I think it's best to assume that Bombshell should also become a sweep. Now, for years, there was much question about who became who, and there were even ridiculous fights about it in fandom. But over time, it's become canon that Thundercracker becomes Scourge, and Skywarp becomes Cyclonus. But I'm here to tell you that it doesn't matter. (gasps) Why doesn't it matter? Shouldn't anything having to do with Thundercracker and Skywarp matter to me? Uh Well, yes. But hear me out. You can consider this a Hoover theory, but unlike a lot of fans, I take this as straight fact. When Megatron is transformed into Galvatron, he is alive. As close to death as he's ever been, yes, but still talking, very much alive. Everyone else hasn't made a peep or moved since they were thrown out of Astrotrain. In every shot of them drifting in space, they do not speak, they do not react, they do not move until Unicron transforms them. Because they're dead. They're offline. They're already gone. Unicron is not bringing these characters back to life. He's reshaping their bodies like Play-Doh and instilling his own life forces slash personalities into these hunks of reformatted metal. Scourge never acts like Thundercracker. Cyclonus never acts like Skywarp. He could say, well, they just went through the most life-altering event ever. Maybe they are them, but they just emerged very changed. That doesn't feel right to me. I see no evidence to support this whatsoever. And trust me, if there's anyone who wants Skywarp and Thundercracker to be alive, it's me. But I think Cyclonus and Scourge and Sweeps are created wholesale just as Vector Sigma creates life in very much the same way. Thundercracker, Skywarp, and the Insecticons were just the Play-Doh that Unicron reshaped. Their life forces or sparks were extinguished. They're gone. Cyclonus and Scourge do not have the memories or think of themselves as Thundercracker and Skywarp. Some fans out there disagree totally, and that's okay. This is a situation where the facts are never explicitly stated. So you have to figure out what your own headcanon is. That's part of the fun. If every last thing was just spelled out, that would be a little dull and wouldn't excite the mind. But this is what I believe, and this is the hill that I will always die on. Nothing in Season 3 contradicts my theory that I know of, and you'd be really hard-pressed to change my mind. So back to the story. Unicron isn't sending off these new characters just yet. And this shall be your ship. A port around the center of Unicron opens to reveal a large purple ship, which floats out to the reformatted Decepticons. Ultra Magnus and every other Autobot until the Matrix has been destroyed. Galvatron, complete with a new voice to go with his new name, boards the large ship as Cyclonus, Scourge, and three sweeps fly into the docking bay of the ship. See? 
three sweeps and no extra Cyclonus anymore. Hmm. As they go, Unicron again declares, Destroy the Matrix. Cut to Cybertron, where we immediately hear trumpets. <laughs> it seems Starscream has demanded a coronation ceremony the second everyone got back. Jersey, would you like to describe this place that we're at? Here we are talking about that idea of how they balance the heavy, scary stuff with some light character-based humor. Starscream's the leader of the Decepticons. Well, how are you going to celebrate, Starscream? What, what, what do you do? Are you going to start planning against the Autobots? No. We're going to have the biggest birthday party for me that you've ever seen, right? He's totally gone into, like, like the stereotype of the bridezilla kind of thing. Like, well, uh, what, what kind of thing you want to do to honor yourself as leader? You want to have a picture put up in the hallway? No! Gather all the Decepticons and Cybertron. Get them over here to this place. I'm going to wear the fanciest cape I can find. You're going to put a crown on my head. And we're going to have trumpets. Trumpets, Starscream? Do we, do we even play trumpets? I don't care. You figure it out. You get some trumpets going at my coronation. So, yeah, we have... This giant platform with some, uh, what would you call it? Like arching metal around it, but it's like very angular. But it, it feels like it's some kind of ceremonial platform. It's like a, a, some kind of like gazebo slash coronation space. But it, it's also a giant hall. It looks like a, like a royal kind of hall. And what's on either side? A bunch of statues of what appear to be old fallen Decepticons from ancient days. That, that's what you can only surmise. They're, they're giant gold statues of characters who are very pointy, right? And, and Decepticons mm -hmm. tend to be pointier than Autobots because uh, this is part of the design language, points equal dangerous and dynamic. But anyway, at the bottom of each statue, they stand on a little platform themselves. There is a, what would you call it? There's like a port. There's a circle. It would look like a, like a dryer from like a laundromat. Inside of each of those ports is a purple glow. It almost looks kind of like fire or something. Mm -hmm. like it makes me wonder if it's like some kind of eternal flame for past Decepticon leaders, question mark, question mark. Mm -hmm. You know, I thought Megatron was the first of the Decepticon leaders, but okay. Apparently there were more. And standing, you see Starscream standing on the platform at the end of the hall, and we see clearly Ramjet and Thrust up there, and maybe somebody else, looks like maybe Astrotrain. And then down at the bottom of the platform, like there's a staircase going down, and we see that the Constructicons are all playing the, tr the trumpets. They're playing trumpets, okay. <laughs> and what would you say? There's like maybe 10 Decepticons there. <laughs> yeah. I love this idea of Starscream being like, get the invitations out. My coronation's on Wednesday. And it's like, I'm not going to that a-holes coronation are you <laughs> no <laughs> but then like somebody's like i have to go he's gonna not he's gonna notice if i'm not there <laughs> i didn't pick up on it at the time when i was a kid but this is like like absolutely this is beautiful character driven comedy is like how flamboyant and narcissistic starscream is would megatron have a coronation ceremony i don't think so and i have a feeling we're to find out what megatron would have for a ceremony indicating that he's the leader <laughs> Surprisingly, and why we'll never know, everyone didn't turn on Starscream, and everyone has seemingly accepted that he's going to be the new leader. Devastator no longer thinks that he's more fitting than anyone? Astrotrain's not throwing his hat in the ring? Or maybe he did, but everyone reminded him that he couldn't even lead a handful of trains. <laughs> but maybe everyone's just decided to allow Starscream this little moment in the sun before they all turn on him. Maybe as soon as he ended his speech, everyone agreed to turn on him and Soundwave would go retrieve Megatron in hopes of bringing him back. 
Again, just speculation, but instead of demanding they be in charge, the Constructicons are here playing trumpets at Starscream's coronation. <laughs> now, if you pause it as the initial shot finishes panning right at 32 minutes and 34 seconds on the Blu-ray, you see some interesting guests at Starscream's coronation. They totally drew in Thundercracker, Skywarp, and the three Insecticons, and even a Reflector. Also, they colored all the Constructicons like Reflector. Of course, the Insecticons could clone themselves, so maybe it wasn't the originals who got turned into sweeps? We do see them at least in background shots of Season 3. And we don't know how the cloning works exactly anyway, so we can't rule out surviving Insecticons. And likewise, there's always been numerous Seekers of the same color, so these could be other Seekers that strongly resemble Thundercracker and Skywarp. In fact, the Thundercrackery one has white hands, and the Skywarpy one has purple wings, so... Different characters? I deem it to be true. <laughs> Shockwave is also here, so that means that likely someone had to break the news to him that Megatron is at least almost dead. But Soundwave was probably like, don't worry, we're going to go pick him up after this farce. <laughs> yeah, it's because, as we all know, if you tell Shockwave that Megatron's dead, his reaction is always just outrage contradiction. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, he really is. I mean, we, we left him in deep space and he was like almost dead when we left him. No, he's not. <laughs> he covers his ears. No, 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 no. <laughs> So, yeah, I, I like that theory of like Soundwave's just biding his time, like let him have his party. Mm -hmm. He's going to dance around a little bit with his crown. And then we do our coup. We bring Megatron back. Right. Then he and Shockwave high five. That's that's actually pretty good. <laughs> and it's worth pointing out that the Stunicons and Gabaticons are not here and not in the movie at all because they show up so late in the season. Their designs probably weren't ready. The comic book adaptation that IDW did years back added a tiny scene showing both of them attacking the Ark during the battle at Autobot City, where they also put Omega Supreme, Superion, and Defensor. So let's hear it for continuity fixes. Oh. So Starscream wants to be official leader pronto and isn't feeling the horn section, so with one shot he takes out all the ends of the horns. Astrotrain places a crown atop Starscream's head as Thrust and Ramjet seems to have their guns turned on the audience below in case anyone stages a coup. Mm. And also, as we look at this particular bit, the animation here changes from the rest of the movie. It really feels like it stands apart. Uh, and I, I'm not saying for good or bad. It's just like something gets like super mech anime. Like Starscream's all beveled, and in in the joints of his body are all these like little bits of glowing blue. You see it like in his wrists and in his neck, you know. And then also when he does his little like flourish and he stands up with his crown on, like everything is moving so much more. It's almost like I feel like the scene is showing off, right? Mm. It's saying like, look at how much more we can do when we actually have a budget. <laughs> <laughs> but also the proportions are weird too. Like Starscream, feel, it feels like his head is really small and his body is really big in the scene. I don't know if you've mm -hmm. picked up on that. Yeah, it makes me wonder if if on a movie like this they are able to send out different parts of it to different art studios or maybe just yeah. little mini groups inside one studio. So I don't I don't know how any of that works. So Yeah. Just gives you like a little question to ask in your mind. Yeah. So Starscream addresses the sparsely attended crowning. My fellow Decepticons your new leader, I...
suddenly the event is crashed by a sleek purple jet known as Cyclonus, who flies as low as possible to the surface of the planet, sending everyone scrambling for safety. Who disrupts my coronation? As Cyclonus comes to a stop, Galvatron leaps out of his cockpit and runs towards the raised platform, joined by a transforming Cyclonus. Yes, Cyclonus is another mass shifter. Galvatron can fit in his cockpit, but in robot mode, they're about the same height. Galvatron takes issue with this whole affair. Coronation Starscream? This is bad comedy. Megatron? Is that you? Here's a hint. Galvatron then transforms into essentially a howitzer or giant cannon and fires directly at Starscream as the other three around him scramble for safety. Starscream takes the blast and begins to glow, writhing with shock as energy pours out of him. He's frozen in place as his body turns all gray except for his red eyes, and then he begins to literally crumble from the top down. His body emits a purple smoke as he literally shatters and crumbles to dust, leaving only about half a leg. So once again, I'm, I, I am not sure if I knew that this was coming, but even so, even if I knew it was coming, to see it happen this way, again, he turns gray. It feels so final. You watch him literally crumble into dust. He's not coming back, kids. And I remember my mouth hung open in the theater. This felt absolutely... This movie just delivers shock after shock after shock. Ironhide's gone. Wow, I'm never going to see Ironhide again. That's kind of that's a hard pill to swallow. Optimus is gone, too. And now, oh my gosh, Starscream is gone. Megatron's gone. You know? And so I guess we should also take a moment to describe, you said that Galvatron essentially turns into a howitzer. Yeah, he turns into like this three-legged laser cannon mm-hmm. thing, essentially. And what's also interesting is like now we're heading into the late 80s and things are starting to turn very late 80s colors. Like Galvatron's fusion cannon is like bright orangish yellow, right? Mm-hmm. And, and he's all purple and gray. And he's very sleek and cool looking, by the way. Looks actually looks more muscular, I would say, than Megatron did. Mm-hmm. But he's just he's definitely much much more colorful. So, but yeah, he doesn't he doesn't have to jump anybody's hand anymore. Now he just like throws nope. a giant can on the ground, and boom, you're gone. The crown from Starscream's head bounces down the stairs of the stage in front of Galvatron. Galvatron transforms back to robot form, and steps on the crown, absolutely crushing it. As smoke billows from the stage where Starscream stood, Galvatron turns to address the others. Will anyone else attempt to fill his shoes? No one is brave enough to speak, except someone who might not have a good knowledge about when to be silent. Yep, it's our good buddy Rumble. What did he say his name was? Galvatron! We cut away from the Decepticons cheering their new-slash-old leader back to Unicron. And it seems he's heading towards Cybertron as Jazz and Cliffjumper are seeing him approach in their instruments on Moon Base One. Where'd that come from? Who cares? I'm more worried about where it's going. And instantly Unicron begins skewering the artificial moon, piercing it with his horns. Jazz tries to radio Earth as the moon crumbles around them. We cut to Autobot City on Earth as the Autobots are all in the process of rebuilding their ruined city. 
Blaster picks up Jazz's communication and plays it for the surrounding Autobots, including Springer, RC, and Ultra Magnus. This is Jazz, a ginormous weird-looking planet that showed up in the suburbs of Cybertron. And it's attacking Moon Base One. Jazz, Cliff Jumper. Unicron continues to devour the moon as Jazz and Cliffjumper attempt a getaway. They manage to get to a ship, hit the ignition, and escape the surface. But the ship is pulled back in and devoured like the rest of the moon. Did we just lose two more beloved Autobots? Put a pin in that. Spike and Bumblebee call Earth from the second moon base. This is Spike and Bumblebee up here on moon base two. This thing, this monster planet just ripped the first moon to shreds. And it's heading this way. We'll try and slow it down. But you'd better get here fast because we're not going to... Dad! So if we could talk about the music playing underneath the beginning of that clip that you just played. Because we're, we are going from the Unicron March. I don't know what you would call that, that the Unicron theme. And then it, it, at the end of that scene, it goes into some other Vince DiCola music. But just the beginning of the scene, when you hear Spike talking, it kind of, I, everybody hit your back 30 on your podcatcher. To me, it feels very Carpenter-esque with Spike's panicked voice talking over top of that droning Unicron theme. I don't know, maybe it's because I've watched too many Carpenter films and I got Carpenter on the mind, but it gave me that vibe when I watched it again and listened carefully to the audio. Spike and Bumblebee start rigging some explosives in order to give Unicron some indigestion before they flee to a ship just as Jazz and Clochumper did. Their ship takes off and manages to escape, and just as Unicron devours the last bit of Moon Base 2, the rigged explosives go off, exploding inside Unicron's gaping maw. The explosive waves rock the ship, but soon they get back on track. The friends high-five and celebrate their gambit working, but looking at the monitor, they're shocked and alarmed to find that this creature isn't even dented. And Spike is so shocked that he drops the S-bomb, asking what they're going to do now. <laughs> okay, do we need to talk about why they dropped an S-bomb in this movie? Well, the real reason why it happened is because G-movies at the cinema always tanked yeah for whatever reason there was no interest in them they always did horribly but they thought if they make it pg by having like one little s word in there <laughs> they could attract more viewers i think didn't it also have something to do with they could have it run at night because it was pg and mm, so it maybe. would get more it would have more screen times and thereby yeah more i think that's a i think that's a factor as well so, I mean, there was, there was definitely a mercenary reason to do it. But now, I think that it will surprise no one that I, get, I got mixed feelings on this. <laughs> because, like, as a kid, this was vital. This was, this was, like, more shocking than watching Optimus die. This was more shocking than watching Starscream die. Spike, the human character who we are supposed to identify with, just swore, <laughs> Right? And so we're like, oh, my gosh, it's so cool. They're swearing and murder. I'm so happy, <laughs> you know. But, but I think a, a thing about this that is worth contextualizing is that the time we grew up in, I think the social contract of adults pretending and children pretending that the adults didn't know that we knew those words 
was a little bit more, I think, codified and real, right? And wh why? Do, what do I mean by that? Is that adults pretended that they that I didn't know what the S word was because I never heard it. Never mind that on the playground we all talked like the characters from Goonies. <laughs> Everybody swore when we were children, but when the adults were around, we didn't use those words because we weren't supposed to know those words, right? And we weren't supposed to use those words certainly. And yes. I had relatives who they, they, they still used the soap in the mouth thing. That was a real thing that happened. <laughs> but I feel like in a post-internet world, I'm working with children where they accept the fact that they aren't supposed to say those words around me, but they don't pretend that they don't know what that is, right? <laughs> there isn't this, this, this sort of feigned innocence around adult, quote-unquote, adult language. Mm -hmm. So I, I feel like when... when when young people encounter this and I talk with them about it and this, they're like, they're like, yeah, yeah. He said the S word. What, what's the big deal? You know, but to us where you just didn't hear that on TV, right? Mm -hmm. I don't even think you heard damn very much on TV back then. It was like pretty heavily regulated. Yeah. So, so yes, there were adult movies where you would like, you put on a Schwarzenegger film, you're going to hear all sorts of language, but the television, you know, the thing I encounter every day when I'm watching my Transformers, you don't hear language like that. So this felt like a bigger transgression then than I think it would have felt like now. Does that ring true for you, Hoover? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Back then, there was such a segregation of language that, I mean, for those of you who didn't grow up in the 80s and have only seen TV like post 2000 or so, it may surprise you to believe they just didn't say certain words on TV unless it was like a pay channel like HBO. Yeah. But now yeah. it's like even network sitcoms can like throw throw a damn in there and the occasional S word and everything. Yeah. But back yeah. in the eighties that was not the case. So to have a cartoon character Right. When one we knew so well say this uh, was unheard of. And I think not only did it feel like a a transgression that makes young children super excited. But I think it underlined the danger in a way that had he not used that word, because like I, <laughs> as a matter of fact, here's another little piece of, you know, time capsule lifestyle pre-internet. I remember being in high school saying like, I know for sure that Spike said the S word in the movie, you know, but the videotape that came out, they took it out. Mm -hmm. Yep. <laughs> And so I would get into arguments with my friend, friends. They'd be like, no, he didn't. I'm like, no, I know he said the S word in the movie. I swear he did. Yeah. And it wasn't until, like, when did the, the final actual theatrical release come out, like, on DVD? It was, it was way later. Yeah, that was probably late 90s or early 2000s. So the Transformers news groups are already well underway at this point. So it had mm -hmm. been confirmed by then. Yes, it did, but the VHS tape didn't have it. Yeah. So, so there's that too. There's a lot of there's a lot of emotions tied around Spike saying that word. Is all I'm saying. <laughs> and I got mixed feelings about it, but I also, you know, it's like I think ultimately it's a good thing that's in there, especially if you're going to go so far as to show Megatron on screen murdering people. Well, why not? <laughs> you know. Well, as Unicron's maw begins to glow once more, the debris from the explosion gets sucked inside, and the fleeing ship gets pulled in as well. Spike and Bumblebee just been killed off too? We'll have to see, but right now we go back to Galvatron on Cybertron who takes issue with Unicron's actions. How dare Unicron! Cybertron and all its moons belong to me! And then we see that Unicron can inflict pain on Galvatron whenever he wishes. 
Red energy waves radiate through Galvatron as he kneels over in pain. Scourge reminds Galvatron. But remember, we belong to him. I belong to nobody. Galvatron struggles to stand, but falls down the stairs. I will obey, Unicron. Then the red light ceases and the pain is over. So Galvatron orders the Decepticons to Earth. So there we go. There's the deal with the devil idea is that you've got the power now. You've got so much power that you can take out, you know, the, the second most toughest Decepticon with one shot so that everybody goes, well, that must be the best one because he's the most powerful. But if you ever do something to cross the dude who gave you that power, it's going to hurt like crazy. So mm-hmm. is that a good deal? Megatron slash Galvatron? Too bad. You shouldn't have done it. And back on Earth at Autobot City, Ultra Magnus is shifting his focus to this monster planet, deadlier than all the Decepticons combined. <laughs> Daniel's worried about his dad, but Magnus says they'll do all they can for him. And he wonders if the Matrix might be used against this creature, and Hot Rod seems to think so. You're right, it can. What do you know about it, lad? I just got this feeling. Now, what I love here is the promise of creative intuition, right? So we did get a prophecy from a dying optimist, right? He's like, one day an Autobot will rise above our ranks and use the power of the Matrix, et cetera, et cetera. But I prefer that the leader's the right person for the job because he's not a soldier, right? He's a creative thinker who is in touch with his instinctual side. This doesn't get expressed, I think, in great clarity or detail in this story. I think I feel like once again Transformers Prime the character of Smokescreen I think did a better job of telling this kind of story but this is this is new fresh air in the room in the Transformers series and I really really like the way they're dropping the hints at it is that he's I guess he's kind of a chosen one because Optimus said a prophecy but I like the idea that like Magnus is like, maybe the Matrix can stop it. I don't know. I'm, I'm just a soldier. I, I'm just, <laughs> just spitballing here. It could be. I don't know. Do you know? <laughs> but Hot Rod feels in his gut. You're right. It can. Well, how do you know? I just got this feeling, right? Ah, that's so great. But before they can question this feeling Hot Rod has, Springer sees bogeys approaching. It's Cyclonus, Scourge, and the Sweeps with Galvatron again in the pilot seat of Cyclonus. But there's an extra sweep now. The sweeps keep multiplying somehow. <laughs> As they fire on the Autobots below, if you pause at 3739, you see Snarl the Stegosaurus Dinobot for, the, I believe, the first time in the movie. And Swoop is now missing. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Ultra Magnus orders everyone to the shuttle as the new Decepticons strafe the grounded Autobots. I, Galvatron, will crush you just as Megatron crushed Prime. And you'll die trying, just like Megatron. Magnus fires back and hits the side of Cyclonus as they fly overhead. Oh, Autobot scrap! You want me to gut Ultra Magnus? There are plenty of Autobots for you. Ultra Magnus is mine. So, as that line is being spoken, Scourge or one of the sweeps flies into the foreground, and this bit of animation happens here that you could describe better than I can, I think, Hoover, and I want to hear your hypothesis as to 
why they did this. Well, it's very strange, but oftentimes, not all the times, but oftentimes, as Scourge or the Sweeps are flying, you see the robot face just <laughs> out. Now, it has this little sort of panel that covers it in uh-huh. sweep mode or is alt mode. But for whatever reason, the face is just out. Yeah. And that seemed to be like an intentional design choice because I've seen like line art drawings of that. Like they really? wanted it that way. Yeah. I think even in the Transformers Universe comic series, they drew it that way. That's so weird. Yeah, because yeah. the sweeps essentially turn into like flying boats. They look like mm-hmm. like sleek, futuristic flying boats. But then, yes, the head of the robot becomes this third thruster on the the boat. And yeah, they will uh, in this scene like the face like sort of rises up. It just pops up. It doesn't say anything, but you just see Scourge's face in boat mode, which has always puzzled me. I, I, I didn't realize that they actually had that as like in the actual character designs. So that's wild. Well, RC and Daniel flee the laser fire, and Daniel almost falls into a freshly shot chasm in the ground, but is rescued by RC, who tells him to stay close to her. Hot Rod runs up behind and tells her that she better stay close to him, but after another strafing run from Cyclonus, RC pulls Hot Rod out of the line of fire and tells him, No, you'd better stay close to me. Now, it wasn't until we got to here. Now, how long has this movie been around? And I had have already spoken in the last episode about how many times I've watched this movie but it wasn't until we were doing this project that I was looking at the screen I noticed that they used pink or red lines to draw RC and nobody else in this cartoon if you look at the lines delineating her helmet her shoulders her face it's like a dark red line as opposed to the black lines on all Mm -hmm. the other characters I'm guessing they did that to sort of make her look softer without using like the harsh black I guess, but yeah, what a wild thing. Like, I mean, that was obviously a very thoughtful thing they did in the cartoon. They did that on purpose, I mean. Mm-hmm. It's amazing that it escaped my, my notice for this long until I got to that moment when I was like still storing, uh, you know, still storing, I did it again, screen capping the part where she says, no, you better stay close to me, which again, everybody in the 80s, that felt like progress. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, meanwhile, Blur is trying to get the stubborn Dinobots into the shuttle, but they're not budging. No good dino, sweet dino, won't you step into the nice spaceship for blood? Pretty please, pretty, 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 please. Nice dino, good dino, with sugar on top and a cherry and some whipped cream. Nice dino, good dino, sweet dino. Me, Grimlock, not nice dino. Me, best brains. Cyclonus and the sweeps then strafe the dinobots, but they shoot their flame breath, and seemingly one of the sweeps is destroyed by their attack. Good thing they're appearing out of nowhere. <laughs> The other Autobots get to the shuttle, and since Blur didn't do such a good job getting the Dinobots into the ship, Magnus puts Cup and Hot Rod on the case, who do a slightly better job, although Hot Rod has to resort to lassoing Grimlock. Okay, so can we can we begin to talk about how hard Magnus is finding it to adjust to his job? Yeah. <laughs> it's it's like blurred i told you to do this thing i can't do this thing fine forget it hot rod cup you do it (laughs) (laughs) like this is the beginning of exasperated ultra magnus and whoever and i have spent the better part of two and a half decades talking (laughs) about how bad he is at his job in this movie and i think that they're they're doing this on purpose they're setting it up that he's not the right person for the job right Mm -hmm. but yeah yeah I, i i love that i love how exasperated he is through this whole next sequence 
So the Autobots are divided between two shuttles, one with Cup, Hot Rod, and the Dinobots. This reminds me of the battle on Alpha 9. The Petra Rabbits with Grimlock, take your noodle out of my face. Me, Grimlock, love Cup's war stories. You're living one now. Engage the boosters for Cybertron's sake. Tell Grimlock about Petro Rabbits again. I'll give you Petro Rabbits. So the Dinobots are in full-on cute mode now. No longer are they the tanks that they pull out of the closet on occasion. They're here to lighten the mood. And by the way, Snarl is not here on the shuttle. Mm. He was just in that one shot as the Decepticons arrived, so I guess he found cover and then fell asleep. <laughs> maybe he encountered Ratbat, who was left behind, and maybe they had a battle. <laughs> they were trapped at a cave talking about, I always get left behind. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> Do you ever feel unappreciated? Me too, too. <laughs> Magnus, Blur, Perceptor, Daniel, and Springer board a second shuttle. It prepares to take off, but Daniel spots RC running towards them. And Springer has to lift her into the shuttle as they're flying away. All right, may I present the court? Uh, exhibit B. <laughs> Wait, Ultra Magnus, RC still out there. Ultra Magnus has already got the engines going. He's like, I'm out of here, guys. <laughs> Ultra Magnus, did you check to see if all your troops are in? Oh, oh yeah, yeah, that's, that's the thing that Optimus would have done, isn't it? Yeah, it is. <laughs> But eventually, the two ships make it off of Earth, and they think they've managed to lose the Decepticons, so they allow themselves a brief respite. The Dinobots make Cup tell them war stories while Hot Rod spars with a combat training robot. This this bit with the everything with the Dinobots in this is wonderful, and this bit is one of those great ones where it's like them just sitting around, literally semicircle around Cup while he's telling a story, and the Dinobots are all nodding, like even Slag is nodding, like, "Oh yeah, tell me more." And Grimlock gets impatient. He says, want to hear the good part of the story. And as he says it, he swings his arm around, hits Swoop in the face. And Swoop <laughs> falls back and is unfazed. Just says, yeah, tell us the good part. <laughs> <laughs> like, being a Dinobot means that you got to get roughed up a bit. <laughs> <laughs> they need lots of room, room to stomp, room to stumble, right? That's <laughs> just who they are. And so Swoop's not going to be angry at Grimlock for hitting him in the face because I'm sure Swoop has also hit Grimlock in the face sometimes. I'm sure Grimlock's like, well, what are you going to do? We're Dinobots. <laughs> so stuff gets wrecked. Maybe even you. But the part where Hot Rod is training, we can say this, right? This is nakedly pointing at Star Wars, right? Mm -hmm. He's even using like a lightsaber type sword. Yeah. And he's the young hero who we're supposed to be following and believing in something special about and all that. So it's like, okay, yeah, he's training. And, you know, that was probably pretty effective shorthand for a lot of kids. Like, oh, yeah, that's just like the the Luke Skywalker training sequence. So, but, yeah, it's it's okay. <laughs> but soon the big purple Decepticon shuttle finds our heroes and sends volleys of missiles at Cup's shuttle. They evade the first volley by rising up, but the missiles turn back and connect with their ship. Thankfully, they remain in one piece. But now out comes Cyclonus to make it personal. Cyclonus manages to single-handedly take out the ship, forcing a crash landing on a very strange-looking planet. Over in the other shuttle, things look bad from their perspective. Cuff and Hot Rod just bought it! I can't deal with that now! Ultra Magnus. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, going back like 10 seconds in the story, when they're like dodging all these missiles, Cup's keeping his head about him. Like, he's like, oh, this reminds me of another battle that I was in one time. And, and Hot Rod's like, how'd you beat them? And I've always loved this line. Cup's like, I'm trying to remember. There's an awful lot of casualties that day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so he's like, yeah, yeah, so many people died that day. I'm trying to remember how we beat those things. And then he's like, oh, yeah, we inverted polarities. And I also love that because how many times in the Sunbow cartoon series, whether it's G.I. Joe, Inhumanoids, Visionaries, Gem, has somebody inverted polarities to stop a thing. That's like the go-to sort of like Acme Incorporated tool to stop a bad thing from happening. Invert polarities. But that so you get that. And even though they crash, like there's like this sense of like they are managing things. You get to Ultra Magnus' ship. He's like, I can't deal with that, okay? Look, I know the two of our friends just got blown up in front of us. I'm doing the best I can here. <laughs> Poor Ultra Magnus. Galvatron's ship follows Magnus's shuttle. Face it, Magnus. The Decepticons are going to dog us until they see us dead. Then that's exactly what they're going to see. Prepare for emergency separation. That's too dangerous. What choice do we have? Then the very front separates from the rest of the ship. Galvatron launches more missiles from his ship, which hit the back half of the Autobot shuttle, which explodes, hiding the escaping front section from view. The Autobots have been terminated. Excellent. And the Matrix with them. But then comes that red light and Unicron-induced Excedrin headache for Galvatron. Take me now! And with that, we end part two of the movie. Whew. So we are now full on following only new characters with a small collection of, I mean, our only old characters are the Dinobots at this point, right? Perceptor. Yeah, Perceptor. So... Yeah, those are our only original season one, season two characters left, and we're following all these new people who I don't even know if we've seen Springer transform yet, but we've seen, well, I guess we saw him very briefly in car mode in Autobot mm-hmm. City when he was coming up to Perceptor, but I mean, that was like one second of animation. Yeah. So we have. We don't even realize yet that he's a triple changer. That's right. We don't. So. But also, and this is something Flint Dilly mentions in the auto commentary on the DVD, is like, at this point, we are moving away from robots in disguise into pure science fiction storytelling. And yes, mm-hmm. our first clue is it takes place in the quote-unquote future. But also, when you look at Cyclonus, he doesn't look like anything you'd see on Earth. He's like this weird plane with wings that swing like a Conquest X-30s, which means i got to get three of them. <laughs> Gal- G- Galvatron turns into an orange and purple future cannon, Scourge turns into a flying boat with a face. (laughs) (laughs) And Hot Rod and Cup are like, the Cup's supposed to be a pickup truck, right? Like a future pickup truck. And Hot Rod is like, well, that's not much of a disguise, Hot Rod. You got like a big flame thing on your your car, you know? At this point, they're just alt modes. They're not any kind of disguise. Yeah, and now we are not dealing with Cybertron anymore. We are not dealing with Earth anymore. Now we are in deep space. We're going to some yonder shores for this next part of the adventure, which I think is interesting too. So, because like when you deal with stories of transformation, these are the, we talked about this in the key to vector signal parts one and two, you know, when they go to find 
Vector Sigma, they have to go into deep into the bowels of Cybertron to this dark place where the monsters live, right? Mm -hmm. The subconscious and whatever. Well, in these kinds of character arc, the Campbellian hero's journey or the story circle a la Dan Harmon, you have to go to a place outside of your comfort zone. You have to, you have to go to a place where you have to adapt, right? And so, well, we fully adapted to Earth. We even have a, a freaking city there. We've adapted to Cybertron. We built some moons, right? So now we got to go to some new places. So I think that's that's the thing that will be worth looking forward to in this next segment that we get into. Mm. Is there anything else that you wanted to observe? I mean, how do you, how are you feeling now that there's no more Megatron anymore? There's no more Megatron, Hoover. It is really sad, but it's paced so well that it's like you're just you're just on a ride at this point, and yeah. you're not stopping time to like think about the ramifications of all this stuff. You're just like on a roller coaster from here on out. Mm -hmm. But one thing that I never really noticed before is that after Galvatron disrupts the coronation and he basically declares himself the new leader, you know, once he sees Unicron eating the moons and then Unicron gives him that Excedrin headache and he says Decepticons to Earth, only the Unicron-created characters go to Earth. You don't see yep. the other Decepticons following Galvatron. Yeah. So that's interesting. I wonder what the thought was behind that. Yeah. Because he seemingly has taken them over at this time, so you'd think they would gladly just follow him, but they don't. I don't know if that character-wise was his decision, or they were just so overwhelmed that they literally just stood there and didn't follow him. I don't know. Mm. But we're not going to see too much more of these old-school Decepticons. Only little yeah. shots here and there, pretty much. Yeah, you're right. You're right. And I mean, probably the, the mercenary reason is the true one, right? It's like, well, focus on the right. new vehicles, the new toys. Yeah. I'm sure that's what they were doing. But you, that is a good point that, like, Soundwave, come on. You got to mm -hmm. be, his name is Galvatron, right? So, you know, it might, it does, and even Starscream said, Megatron, is that you? So, Soundwave, it seems like we should have seen a scene where he sidles up to Galvatron. Like, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think, I think of all characters, like, Soundwave has enough sensors and yeah. everything to determine that, yes, he's different, but this is Megatron. Mm hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, it is interesting that we don't see any of the other ones, at least not for the next third of the movie. I don't mm -hmm. think we've seen any other Decepticons besides just the new Unicron-created ones. Fascinating. I don't think I've ever observed that before, but yeah, it makes perfect sense that... It, it would make perfect sense for at least a, a handful of Megatron's inner circle to be there with him. on Because mm -hmm. he, he has a space cruiser, for crying out loud. Yeah, yeah, they could have all loaded up on that ship. That ship is huge. Right. So, hmm. But And again, yeah. it's just another thing. This movie is so fast-paced that that never even really occurred to me before i've seen this movie dozens of times more than and dozens. it just n never really <laughs> came to mind yeah same here huh so well, that's cool. a, another great thing about doing this show and doing this podcast where we can actually take time for real analysis and pause it at certain moments and be able to see things that we never really noticed before that's i mean <laughs> if, there, if there's any movie that tells you to whip out the pause button. It's this one. 
because there's a lot of shots where you're like, oh, look, there's Reflector. Oh, look, there's a purple Decepticon Seeker. You know, you see mm. these things just blow by really quick. But mm -hmm. you get that pause button ready and you can find out a lot of stuff. That I, I think that that's another good observation to make is that this is Sunbow tuned to concert pitch. And Sunbow cartoons, mm -hmm. are they've had a lot of experience trying to cram a lot of story into 21 minutes, sometimes successfully, sometimes not. But most of the miniseries that they did between Transformers and G.I. Joe and some of the other ones tended to feel like all, you're getting a lot of adventure for your time. And this movie is definitely like a great example of that. Like it just, you're right. It, it is relentlessly paced mm -hmm. and yet it doesn't feel like it's rushing through anything. Right. So, and, and we're, we're about to tumble into a whole new realm of changing in the story and the status quo of the transformers, you know, mythos. Yeah. And it's not going to feel like, Hey, where'd they come from? It's going to feel very much like this is an inevitable place where things had to go in order to mm -hmm. pr proceed in the story. If, if you are now turning this into a galactic story, well, we're going to start seeing more of the galaxy. So Yeah, and, and thank goodness they thought ahead to say, okay, let's skip ahead 20 years. Mm -hmm. Because that just allows for forgiveness for all, the, all this change. Because of <laughs> course all that stuff could have happened in 20 years. If this was just supposed to happen like a year after bot or something, oh my, the questions that would have been brought up. It's like, okay, where did Hot Rod Cup, Blur, and all those guys come from? You know, mm -hmm. but it's like they were like, let's just forget that aspect of it by saying, oh, we're jumping ahead 20 years. Which again... A lot can happen in 20 years. And, and, and again, that just feels like comparatively so daring to what we do today. Right, mm -hmm. where we're just endlessly re rehashing or rebooting old properties and just like adding a modern twist to it, for this series to say like, nope, we're going to continue it on, but we're going to jump ahead twenty years in the future, basically change the entire status quo of the thing. Wow, how incredibly exciting was that? Like, it was exciting beyond what my little thirteen-year-old brain could comprehend. Like, I almost wish I would have had this relationship with the show back then, you know, in my twenties. Or like mm -hmm. in my early 30s, I think I would have been so... I mean, the fact that we even got Beast Wars after that, which built even more on it, it's just like, wow, I can't believe that even happened. Because that mm -hmm. feels unthinkable today. To yeah. have something last for four or five years and then to like flip the switch on and say, like, now it's a new status quo in the fourth year. Wow. Mm -hmm. And we took it so much for granted back then that I remember... In the end of season two of Beast Wars, I thought, well, season three is going to be a post-apocalyptic story for sure. It has to be after they change mm. things this way. And then when mm. they just like reset the, the button at the, in like the first four minutes of episode one of season three, I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> 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 because that feels more like the kind of storytelling we've had since then, where it's like, well, we're not going to deviate that far, but this did. Mm -hmm. So I, I feel like those writers deserve like some major high fives for that. Not yeah. just the... It's not just that they murdered everybody they had swears. Like, yes, 13-year-old me loved that. But, like, the fact they did this, like, really daring thing by changing so much so quickly, it's pretty darn cool. And the fact that Hasbro went along with it. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. I mean, if you think about, like, how violent and everything this is, mm -hmm. Hasbro didn't step in and say, no, no, <laughs> don't, don't do that. 
<laughs> and you know, I'm I'm not even making a judgment call on whether or not that was a good thing. What I'm saying is that that's an odd thing. You know, mm-hmm. if you think it's good or if you think it's bad, it doesn't matter. But Hasbro went from Transformers being this on-air cartoon to being this thing where heroic characters die in just the first few minutes. Characters mm-hmm. that the kids loved. And Hasbro was like, yeah, okay. <laughs> is, is it going to make them buy the new toys? Well, yeah, yeah. Okay, you do whatever you want. Is it going to have Satan worship in it? Uh, well, I, I suppose that's okay if it sells more toys. <laughs> Are the drawings actually going to be made with human blood? Sure, why not? Is it going to sell more toys? We're in. <laughs> uh, the amorality of capitalism. <laughs> You know, it actually, Hasbro was actually run by Tomax and Zaymot. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Well, I am excited. I'm not even going to ask you what we're going to watch next because I know we're going to watch the next 20-something-odd minutes of Transformers the movie. So everybody, <laughs> break out your Blu-ray players or your digital version if you downloaded it too and watch it ahead of time. Watch the next 20 minutes of the movie and come back to 4millionyearslater.com when the next episode drops and we, we can all discuss it together. While I'm on the subject, if you want to be worthy of the Matrix when it's past you and not some dithering weirdo who says, I can't deal with that, forget it. Everybody, I'm, I'm taking off and leaving your friends behind. Give us a five-star re- review wherever you listen to us. And you know, if you really want to be a big hero, if you want to be such a compelling and dynamic person that the Dinobots will sit in a semicircle around you and nod at you and, and hang on your every word, write a review. You know, practice those writing chops so you can tell those stories to the Dinobots. Say just a few things you like about this project, a few things you like about the Transformers, and you're done. And that helps more people find the project as well. Hoover, can anybody do anything else to help make this project more sustainable? You can head to our TeePublic store at tpublic.com slash user slash 4 million years later. And we have some fun little designs there. You can get them printed on stickers, baby onesies, wall tapestries, all matter of things. Mugs, mm. laptop cases, phone mm. cases. Cool. All right. Well, this show drops on Thursdays at 4millionyearslater.com and in podcatchers everywhere. Until next time, I have been Jersey Droz to 4millionyearslater.com and rss.jdroz.com for everything I make. And I have been Hoover. Okay, bye. Goodbye. Episode synopses are from imdb.com and some episode information taken from tfwiki.net. The closing theme is by Nick Mahalik, based on the original closing theme by Ford Kinder and Ann Bryant. You can find more of Nick's music at soundcloud.com slash nicholas-mahalik. That's spelled N-I-C-H-O-L-A-S-M-E-H-A-L-I-C-K. Find us on Facebook under 4 Million Years Later, and you can email us at 4millionyearslater at gmail.com. Visit 4millionyearslater.com, and if you haven't yet, please subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. You know how it works. <laughs>